Our text this morning is Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. Uh, We began this morning in Sunday school uh, with a study of Galatians 3, 1 to 14. We're going to look at verses 15 through 22 this morning, and then this evening we're going to look at verses 23 through chapter 4, verse 7. So Galatians 3, 15 through 22, this is the word of the Lord. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray now again that you would open our minds to understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you couldn't tell from that reading, we are in the thick of the argument of Galatians. We saw in Sunday school this morning that Paul has been driving home the point in this letter that Christians' performance of the Mosaic law has no place in their justification. We are not saved by the law. In fact, we are under a curse if we go back to the law. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. The question naturally arises, therefore, If performance of the law has no place in our justification, then then why did God even give the law? What's the point of the law? In the hot summer months here in Alabama, the mosquitoes come out, don't they? They generally leave me alone, but they love to attack my wife. We have struggled with our theology of mosquitoes. God created all animals to bring glory to himself. The fall, though affecting mosquitoes, did not rob those animals of their God-glorifying purpose. How is the mosquito, in attacking my wife, glorifying God? We can't figure it out. Are mosquitoes somehow vestigial, useless parts of God's creation? Well, of course not. They can't be. We don't worship a God who 
creates for no purpose, even if we don't understand that purpose. So here, we might be tempted to question God for the giving of the law. If performance of the law has nothing to do with our justification, then why did God give us a law and say, obey it? Is the law a useless, vestigial part of God's purposes? If not, and it can't be, then how is it? How does the law function in relationship with God's promises in the biblical story? And that's what Paul addresses in our text here this morning. Now, some of you, when you read the text that we just read, you're thinking, what in the world is Paul trying to say here? I mean, what, of, what practical use is this? What is the practical use of thinking through the, the, the temporal priority of the covenant over the law in the purposes of God? What, what do we need to know? Why do we need to know that the law was given by angels through an intermediary? What, what's this all about? What's the practical use of this? Well, I would say, first of all, Paul thought it practical enough to tell the Galatians But undergirding all of this passage is the practical need that we all have to know that we are saved. And you cannot know that you are saved unless you know that the promise of your salvation takes priority over your ability to keep the law. We need to know that we believe in a God who keeps his promises. And though he gives a law that might initially appear to place the onus of salvation upon us, it's really not that law that justifies us. We are, we are justified as Abraham's children by promise. And we need to know that we are saved by a promise because We doubt our salvation when we start thinking that we're justified by the law. We need to know this really for our own spiritual sanity. Three points for this morning. Our inheritance comes by promise. That's verses 15 through 18. Our inheritance comes by promise. Second, the law was given because of transgressions. That's verses 19 and 20. The law was given because of transgressions. And then third, the law is not contrary to God's promises. That's verses 21 and 22. The law is not contrary to God's promises. So first, our inheritance comes by promise. Verses 15 through 18. Let's trace Paul's argument together here in these verses. Verse 15, Paul gives an illustration to illustrate what he's talking about. He says this, he says, Once you have signed a contract with another party, you don't get to go back and change that contract on your own initiative without the consent of the other party. Now, that's not just a first century idea. I mean, I'm a contract lawyer. I know this is true. You don't get to change the contract on your own. You have to get the consent of the other party. And Paul says that this is analogous to the way that God's promises work. God gave a promise to Abraham. That means, verse 17, that the law, when given by God 430 years after Abraham, it didn't go back and change the promises that were already given by God. If God's promises can be changed, 
then God is not really God. No, no. Verse 18, the law does not annul the promise. The law does not change God's promises. God has always purposed to give blessing to all of us through the promises to Abraham. It's been his plan all along. As we saw in Sunday school, the giving of the law is not some sort of plan B in God's dispensation. It has always been that the salvation would come through the promises to Abraham. And therefore, in order to receive God's blessing, you must be a child of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham does not come through the law. It comes through the promise. We inherit God's blessing through the promise. Now, let's spend a few minutes here on verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, what's this about? Paul, on the other side of the cross, our side of the cross, he is going back to the promises made to Abraham in Scripture, and he is interpreting them in light of Jesus Christ. And he makes his argument here based upon grammar. God is into grammar. Jesus makes arguments based on grammar as well. You remember that? that uh, exchange he was having with the Pharisees about the, resur- or the Sadducees, I should say, about the resurrection. And what does he say? He says, the scripture says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Not, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, they are alive. I am their God. Jesus makes arguments based on grammar. And Paul is doing the same thing here. He's saying that the promises made to Abraham were made to Abraham and to one person. Not many people, to one person. The promise was to Abraham and to his offspring, not to his offsprings. Therefore, Paul concludes, the promises were made to Abraham and to who? To Jesus, the one offspring Christ. Jesus is the ultimate inheritor of the promises to Abraham. Now, you ought to perk up a little bit at what Paul is doing here and say, is that really what Genesis says, Paul? I mean, I thought it was rather clear that the promises were to Abraham and his offsprings. After all, wasn't he told that they would be as numerous as the stars of the sky? What, what Bible are you reading, Paul? Well, Paul appears to be using here an allegorical method of interpreting the Scripture, a method that was very common among Jewish rabbis. And and despite our difficulty in understanding Paul's use of the Old Testament and how he understands offspring, it is clear that Paul sees all of Abraham's multiple offsprings as incorporated into one offspring, who is Christ. We are inheritors of the promise, not directly in some sort of a physical connection to Abraham, but we are inheritors of the promises because we are in union with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate inheritor of the promises to Abraham. We are incorporated into him. We inherit the promises to Abraham because we're united to Christ. What belongs to Jesus belongs to us. That's why we get his righteousness, because we're united to him. So here's the significance for us. God promises Abraham, I will be God to you, 
and to your offspring. I will be God to you and to Christ. God is our God in Jesus Christ. When God promises Abraham that kings are going to come from you, Jesus Christ is himself the king of kings. And the New Testament teaches that because we're united to the king of kings, guess what happens? We get to reign with Christ as well. What about the land promise? I'll give you a great land. Wasn't the land promise ultimately and finally fulfilled in the creation of the Jewish state in 1948? No. We're all inheritors of the land promise. The land promise to Abraham is a foreshadowing of Christ and the saints inheriting the entire world. That's why, what does Jesus say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the meek, for they shall what? Inherit the earth. What does Paul say in Romans 4.13 about the promise to Abraham, the land promise? Abraham and his offspring are the inheritors of what? The world. 1 Corinthians 6.2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Why are the saints judging the world? Because they're kings and queens over it. Revelation 5.10, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We inherit the land promised to Abraham. God is a God of promise. We receive all spiritual blessings in Christ by promise, not through the keeping of the law. Second, the law was given because of transgressions. That's verses 19 to 20. Verse 19. Why then the law? That's our sermon title this morning. Why then the law? If the law is so useless as regards our salvation, then why did God give it? Paul's answer, It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. That's what he says. That's why the law came in. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It is important to understand that Paul views the law as having different uses. One way to look at the Galatian problem is to understand that they are trying to use the law in a way that God did not intend for the law to be used. Despite how we might want to read Paul at first blush, Paul will most certainly enjoin obedience to the law when that law is understood to be a guide to Christian conduct. But in the situation here where the Galatians are using the law for justification purposes, Paul says, actually, in that case, the law does not justify, it condemns. Why did the law come in? It came in because of transgressions. And it, it came in to reveal to sinful men and women like us just how sinful they really are. And simultaneously, in showing the greatness of our sin, what does the law do? It drives us to the Savior. It drives us to Jesus Christ. Why the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And who is that offspring to whom the promise had been made? Jesus Christ himself. You can't use the law for a purpose that God did not intend for it when he gave it. That, that which came to show us our sin and our need for a Savior cannot 
also be used to achieve salvation through obedience. That's not one of the uses of the law. Look here at the end of verse 19 and 20. This uh, particular phrase gets lots of people uh, confused. Uh, they're odd. Some of these things are odd. This whole idea about the law being put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. What's this about? Well, I take it here that, that Paul is attempting to show us the superiority of salvation through the promise, as opposed to the law, by showing how the law had several intermediaries but God simply gave the promise to Abraham one-on-one. It was understood in Jewish thinking that the law was given through angels, through Moses, to the people of God. Remember when Stephen is preaching in Acts 7, right? You who received the law through angels didn't actually keep it. The idea that the law was given through many intermediaries before it reached the people. But the promise to Abraham was simply spoken by God directly to Abraham. An intermediary implies more than one party. But a unilateral promise comes from only one party. And even more so is that promise sure and steadfast from the God who is himself one. We're very tempted to misuse God's law. We are tempted to use God's law in a way that God did not intend with the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. What do I mean? Well, perhaps we start our days by looking in the mirror and saying, God, you have done so much for me. You have saved me out of sheer love and mercy and in thankfulness for what you have done for me, I want to obey you today. Please help me to resist sin and to obey you today. And as you go through your day, you find yourself obeying God's law to some extent. And that thought creeps into your head, God must be very pleased with me because of how well I'm obeying him today. In fact, he will bless me because I have pleased him today. These these good actions of mine will surely usher me through the pearly gates. And then when that thought creeps into your mind and then you sin, and when you finally do sin during the day, what happens? You think you've lost your salvation. You weren't relying on the promise. You were relying on the law to merit your standing before God. Don't misunderstand. Our obedience is pleasing to God. We we are incorporated into Jesus Christ, and, and obedience done to him is to his glory. He loves to see his children walking in obedience, but there's a difference between that and thinking we're going to merit something before a holy God for our obedience. And that's a very slight shift thinking that occurs in our mind It's a very slight shift that goes, I'm glorifying God, I'm striving to obey in the law, 
to now my obedience merits me something. And now all of the things that happen when you start thinking that way are atrocious. You, you think you lose your salvation when you sin. You start being overly judgmental of others who don't meet up to your particular standards and understanding of how the law works. We, when that happens, we, we have slipped into the Galatian misuse of the law. Our, our salvation must rest on the promise in order for our consciences to not constantly condemn us. If the law is there to show us our sin and to drive us to Christ, what makes us think that we can make a different use of it and try to justify ourselves before God with it? It's not going to work. And Paul makes a very similar point here in verses 21 and 22. Third point, the law is not contrary to God's promises. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. In other words, if you misuse the law and make obedience to it a way for justification, you have a biblical theological problem. You've made the Bible contradict itself. God said he would justify through the promise. But now if you say God justifies by the law that he introduced 430 years afterward, what happens to the promise? Has God introduced a way of justification through the law that is superior to the promise? Certainly not. The law is subservient to the promises. The promises are not subservient to the law. Into verse 21, if the law had been given that could give life, then justification would indeed be by the law. But we all know that the law has the opposite purpose, don't we? Its purpose is not to give life. Its purpose is to show us our death, and that justly. And so, verse 22, the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. The Scripture came in to show us our sin, to declare everything under sin, so that we might run to Jesus Christ, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. He's reiterating the point from verse 19. The law came in to show us our sin and to show us our need for Christ. The scripture declares all of us, every single one of us, under the slavery of sin in order that we would see very, very clearly that we are saved in Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, because of God's promise and not otherwise. Why the law? to drive us to Christ. Calvin comments on verse 22 here this way. This sentence, he says, verse 22, is full of the highest consolation. It tells us that wherever we hear ourselves condemned in Scripture, there is help provided for us in Christ if we betake ourselves to him. We are lost, though God were silent. Why then does he so often pronounce that we are lost? It is that we may not perish by everlasting destruction, but struck and confounded by such a dreadful sentence, we might by faith seek Christ through whom we pass from death to life. When the law passes sentence upon us in our consciences, that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to tell us that we in ourselves are condemned. So when the law accuses your conscience, it's not going to do any good to say, well, I'll make up for it by my obedience. Don't attempt to perform more law in order to fix the problem. Your conscience is only going to condemn you more. 
Rather, run to Christ, for that is the law's purpose, to make you run to Jesus Christ. It's a comforting thought that when I've broken the law and I come under conviction, uh, God's actually designed it that way. He's designed the law to bring me under conviction that I might run to Jesus for refuge and rest on him alone. When I, when I sin, I don't run away from the judge. I, I run to the judge because he's the only one who can give me clemency from the law. A few years ago, I don't know if some of you remember this, Sinead O'Connor announced her conversion to Islam. She stated on Twitter in her announcement, This is to announce that I am proud to have become a Muslim. This is the natural conclusion of any intelligent theologian's journey. All scripture study leads to Islam, which makes all other scriptures redundant. Now, it's of interest that Islam is growing in the Western world and and that that growth is on the heels of the moral vacuum that has been created by relativism. I mean, people know relativism isn't true, so so they're like, we've got to have some morals somewhere. Like, this isn't going to work. So they're latching on to all kinds of things. And many people are signing up for Islam and have absolutely no idea what they're in for. But among other things, let me tell you what Sinead O'Connor is never going to get from Islam. She's not going to find a God who saves her based solely upon his promise and not upon her moral performance. She will know nothing of the blood of Christ cleansing her conscience. She will only know the burden of law-keeping, and it will crush her just like it crushes every other person who attempts to justify themselves by keeping the law. What a wise God we have. I have absolutely no idea what the Galatians, at this particular historical moment in time, I have no idea what they were thinking. Who in the world, who in the world, after tasting freedom in Christ, would go back to the slavery of the law? If there's anyone here this morning, I don't care if you've been sitting in the pew your whole life. If there's anyone here this morning who has finally realized that they cannot keep the law, Jesus Christ stands ready to receive you. There is no life apart from life in Christ. If the law has done its work of driving you to despair, Look to Jesus Christ. He became the curse of the law in your place. That's what the law does. It takes us to the one, the only one, who can give us what we really need in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for this great salvation which you have given to us in Jesus Christ. We're grateful, Father, that you've not left us in the dark about how it is that we make it back to you after our sin. We're thankful, Father, that you have have showed just how far short we really are of your glory, but also how loved we are that you would send your own son to become the curse of the law for us, 
that he would stand condemned in our place. So we pray, Father, that we would move from thinking we merit things into thinking that we are free to walk in obedience because we are your loved children and that you have incorporated us into Jesus Christ. We're thankful for this great promise. We pray that we would believe it in Jesus' name.